good. It's good to be with you again. Last time uh, I was here, I was thick with cold. And I sniffed my way through the whole thing. Uh, if you don't believe me, go back and listen to it online. You go, <laughs> the whole time. Um, tonight's not quite so bad. I've had another cold since then. It's just about cleared up in time for this evening. So we'll see how we get on. Um, Stuart referred to uh, my name and whatever I'm called tonight. Just for those who haven't seen me before, um, when my talks go online, they go under the name of Peter Stevens. That's not because I'm completely pretentious. Um, it's just because I've had a lot of hassle in my life over the last few years. And it's just better and safer for me that my name doesn't go online and get Googled easily because there's some crazy people around in my background uh, and I don't really want them coming and causing uh, problems. So uh, I don't want to put my name out on the internet to get Googled and stuff. Uh, So I'm Evan, but if you go looking later, the name online for church talks is Peter Stevens. You can talk to me more about that if you want to another time. Uh, It's a blessing to be here. We're talking tonight about pouring our hearts out to God. And uh, one of the things that I want to just start off by saying is is a bit of an awareness of blessing for me, which I've sort of alluded to a few times since I've started talking here. But it is the little things that God does, and we'll be picking up again on this in a moment, but the little things that God does in our lives that we need to hang on to and be aware of blessings. When we come to pour out our hearts, sometimes we need to be aware of what we're pouring out, not just the complaints, which we'll be thinking about, but also the thank yous. And I just want to acknowledge the thank you to God before you tonight. A year, just over a year ago, well, 18 months ago, I was leaving behind a life 200 miles away and I didn't know what I was coming to. And God led me here. And I've already said a couple of times about Stuart and Tracy being some of my oldest friends uh, from way back when. Uh, And it's amazing for me to be preaching tonight alongside Stuart leading and Tracy singing because our paths go back so far into history. It's just uh, beautiful. And I would have a no inkling that that was going to have happened for me, that God would lead me back here. Uh, but then also uh, Claire, who I didn't know before I came back here, she's best friends with some of our best friends and my best friends, and we keep on finding people that we know all over the place that we're connected to and, uh, and have in our lives. And then lo and behold, I posted about Aldridge on Friday night, and Richard sat here, who's also been singing tonight, who we've hardly known each other. We've just sort of shaken hands and said hello, really. Uh, The church, I used to be a vicar of a church in Aldridge, which turns out Richard grew up in. (laughs) So all these things keep on overlapping, and there's just this sense of of home and, and goodness for me. So I just wanted to acknowledge that. Would you, uh, if you've got Bibles or phones with Bibles on, uh, or maybe Scott will find it really quickly on the screen, Psalm 142, verses 2 and verses 5. There's just uh, a few psalm bits and bobs we're going to have a quick look at just to set the scene. Psalm 142. Uh, actually, I'll start from verse 1. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint before him. Before him I tell my trouble. Verse 5. I cry to you, O Lord. I say you are my refuge, my portion 
in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. And then Psalm 62. I'll either back a few pages or a few phone screen swipes to get back. Psalm 62, verse 8. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. That's really our, our key verse tonight. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. I don't know if you're anything like me, but I've been to quite a few different Anglican churches over the years. And one of the things which really leaves me cold about Anglican churches is the prayers. I can't do prayers in Anglican churches. They just don't work for me. It's like listening to a spiritual newsreader <laughs> who's just telling us what's happened in the week before and sticking our men on the end of it. And I'm like, that isn't prayer. For me, prayer is about what we read in this verse. Trust in him at all times, O people, and pour out your hearts to him. What does it mean to pour out your heart to God? It doesn't mean to read some sanitised version of global news events and say, oh God, please do something about it. Amen. That isn't prayer to me. Prayer is about getting on our knees and crying out before a God who we say we trust, a God who we say is Father, a God who we talk about having an open, intimate, deep and meaningful relationship with to the extent that you would expect him to know something of what's ticking inside us and to share that stuff with him. True, your relationship with God should be a relationship with someone who we would hand over our most personal diary, would hand over our smartphones to and give the password to and say, there, go and have a look, that's me. Worship, prayer, relationship with God is about being known by God on the most deep and intimate level. Pour out your hearts. But what if life isn't good? Surely God doesn't want to deal with all that stuff. Aren't we meant to be worshipping God? Aren't we meant to be saying to him all the good stuff and the fluffy stuff and the hallelujah stuff? No. So when I was first married, I was 22 years old. We'd been married for six months. Uh, my testimony will give you more background on my marriage, uh, which no longer exists. And uh, it wasn't a very good place already. But six months in, and my wife's dad died suddenly from a heart attack. I was at Bible college, trained to be a vicar, and I felt full of life and vigour and future and God's calling, and it was all meant to be amazing, and already it wasn't amazing. And then this huge steamroller just came and levelled us when her dad died. Truthfully, I didn't really know her dad that well. We had got married very quickly, and I'd met him a number of times, but I couldn't say that I was close to him, but she was. And she was my wife, and we were meant to be having this wonderful life together, and that was just ruined. And she was lost, and she was broken, and she was massively grieving and depressed. And as we journeyed through those first few months of grief, 
I was just lost. And I didn't know what to do. And I was going into college and learning how to be a vicar. And I just felt broken. And I talked to this guy at college who was like one of the, the spiritual uh, guiding type people who are there, not just to teach us theology, but to form us spiritually. Claire, have you been formed spiritually in your training? The, the Church of England likes to form us spiritually. Ron, did you get formed spiritually? Yes, Ron's got the tie of being formed spiritually as well. Uh, and so these people are there to guide you and so on. And, and I remember him listening to the stuff I was struggling with and saying to me, well, Evan, have you, have you told God about this? I was like, no. Because actually, I'd still sort of grown up with this idea from Sunday school that prayer was joy, Jesus, others, yourself. So you start prayer by, by talking to Jesus about Jesus and sort of worshipping him, and then you pray about others. That's where the, sort of the global news stuff comes in. And then the yourself bit, well, that needs to be sort of little and squashed down, and don't major too much on that, because joy is really about Jesus and others and maybe yourself, if you're lucky. That's sort of how I'd sort of picked up the picture from Sunday school, and I hadn't gone to God with how I was really feeling. But we had this quiet room in college, and we were encouraged to go and use it. And after a while of feeling really messed up with the stuff I was dealing with, I listened to this advice and I was told that it was okay to shout at God. So I've never shouted at God before. And I went to this quiet room and I started trying to shout at God quietly <laughs> without actually saying anything. It's like, I'm really not happy, God. Sorry. Shh. And then it was empty and there was no one around. And I thought, I wonder if I can really say that out loud. And so I started to actually talk to God as though he was in the room and started to talk to him about the stuff I was feeling inside. And that started to just bubble and build and come out. And I found that you could literally shout at God. And I found that it wasn't scary and I found that actually it felt good. It felt good to really let rip with what was on the inside. It felt good to let God know what I was dealing with. It felt good. And it felt safe. What does this verse say? I've lost it now. Where were we? Six, verse 8. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Do you know it's safe to shout and scream and, and kick off at God. It's safe. He can actually handle it. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? God, creator of the universe, can actually cope when you're having a tough time. He's not going to be upset with you. He's not going to get cross at you. He's not going to call you a failure or stupid or tell you to buck your ideas up because God is our Father and he loves us. When my kids come to me and they're having a tough time, I don't tell them to clear off and they're being idiots. Well, sometimes they are being idiots, and I tell them they're being idiots, but that's just standard parenting. <laughs> if my kids are having a genuinely tough time, it doesn't matter how much of a mess they're making or how much they're screwing things up themselves. What do you do as a parent? You just simply love them. And that's how it should be with worship and with prayer.
In order to maintain a relationship with God during tough times, when we need to call out to God, there is a desperate need for us to be honest with him. But there's also a desperate need for us to be honest with ourselves because actually those moments aren't the fullness of reality. I'm going to have a brief pause here and I'm going to take you to a Christmas favourite movie of mine. By saying that and by what you're about to watch, I'm about to instantly lose all my man points because we're going to watch a bit of Mary Poppins. Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. There, a bit of Christmas cheer for you. Hands up all who love Mary Poppins. Good, I'm not alone. Great. Uh, so what I wanted to show you that for was uh, just as an excuse to share a bit of Mary Poppins, but also because of that need for us all to have a bag like Mary Poppins has got. We need to hold on to the stories of the good things that God has done in our lives, ready for times when things have gone completely pear-shaped, and to be able to just pull out from nowhere a story of the past. So when I've been through tough times, which I've had a few, I can't look God in the eyes and say, hey God, thank you so much for right now, because I'm not feeling it. And there have been times when I've come perilously close to saying, hey God, I don't want you in my life anymore because this is just a mess uh, and this is painful. But I've not been able to do that because I've had a Mary Poppins type bag full of stuff that God has done in my past, in happier times, in better times. So uh, one of the things that you need to know about me is that I was born at Ashford Hospital in 1974, and at that time, I was the heaviest baby ever to have been born at Ashford Hospital. <laughs> 12 pounds, 6 ounces. Absolutely, I'd have eaten half of you for breakfast. I was premature as well. And I was put in an incubator, and apparently there was all these tiny little babies in incubators, and then there was me, <laughs> squishing out against the, the walls. And uh, the cost of that, though, was that my right arm was, uh, was ripped out of its socket when I was born. The doctor pulled me by my arms, dislocated my right shoulder, damaged the nerves through uh, the vertebrae uh, in my spine. Uh, so I had a condition, I still have a condition called Herb's palsy. Uh, so I was born with a totally paralyzed right arm. The shoulder was dislocated and grew completely malformed because they didn't realize what had happened. And so until I was six years old, my shoulder was totally dislocated. And by that point, uh, it was too late to do anything. I was in Great Ormond Street as a child. They reconstructed my arm, uh, twisted it back round, cut it, broke it, moved it round, straightened it out. I had lots of physio. I had to learn how to use a paralysed arm uh, through the, um, my childhood. And uh, today I've got an arm that I can use a bit, but I can't do much with it. And uh, it did, for a long time, cause me chronic pain. But I was ministering in the church that Richard grew up in. And I had a curate to train. And this curate was totally different to me in every way. Uh, he was um, getting on for about 70 years old. He was from a very traditional church background. He had no connection with me in any way, shape or form in terms of his style of ministry. 
And I had to train him in how to do ministry, and it was a bit of a head-scratcher, I can tell you. But at the time, I was in chronic pain. I'd been on pain medication for uh, about six or seven years. Daily pain medication had to build up this... uh, level of, uh, of, of constant meds in my system to try and dull the pain that I was dealing with. And it wasn't just my shoulder, it was nerve damage through the muscles which are atrophying, it was across my back and down my spine, it was all over the place. And I would often sit in meetings sweating just with agony. And I was in this meeting with this guy one day, uh, just me and him, and he could see the pain etched on my face. And he said, Evan, are you okay? And I said, I'm sorry, I'm I'm really not feeling okay today. I've just got so much pain going on. Uh, But I said, it's fine, ignore it. There's nothing we can do about it. And he said, well, can I pray for you? And I said, well, of course you can. And then he said, well, I've never actually prayed for anyone before. He'd already been ordained. And I thought, how's that happened? Anyway, so he said, what do I do? And I said, well, what you do is just pray for me. Just You can come and lay your hands on me if you want to and and pray, I don't know. And... uh, so he came round, I sat down, he put his hands on me and I just remember him, every syllable was a pat. He didn't just lay his hands on it. He was like, dear Lord, please bless Evan. And I was sitting there thinking, oh great, I've really got to pick up on this. And, and I was just sat there thinking, oh, this is a crummy prayer. This is rubbish. And the next day, I was pain free. And it never came back. And I stopped the meds. I've never been back on them. I have problems from time to time. But the chronic debilitating pain that I suffered ended with that prayer that was the crummiest, most hopeless example of how to pray for someone I've ever met in my life. And I have to say thank you, God. I also used to be covered in psoriasis from about uh, my early 20s through to my early 30s, I had psoriasis covering my body and breaking out of my face. And for several years, I was going through dermatology clinic after dermatology clinic, and they tried every single treatment to try and clear up this psoriasis, which was everywhere. And they couldn't do it. Nothing touched it. And my life group that I belonged to in this other church there was I was curate, they said, Evan, we are going to pray for you until that has gone. And I was like, oh, fine, you, whatever. And they did. And they met every week, just once a week, when they met as a group and they prayed that God would clear up my psoriasis. And within three months, I was clear. It had just gone. And it's those things that I keep in my bag that when life is just ripped apart, I go back to and I say, no, I cannot dismiss God and I cannot dismiss his goodness because there's stuff in this bag. I can pull this out and I can look at it and I can say, God did that. Did that. And that becomes part of my calling out to God, part of my my pouring out my heart, saying, God, I don't understand what I'm doing in this moment in my life or what is happening. But I, I trust in your goodness because I've got this stuff in my bag that tells me that you're good even if I can't see it today. But when we look to the past, we can remember God's goodness. The Jews are amazing at this. So I lived in Israel for a year. I remember being served food by an old lady with a tattoo on her wrist from the concentration camp that she was a captive in. The Jewish people survived the Holocaust 
just by hanging on to the stories of God for their people, not just in their lifetime, but in their ancestors' lifetimes, going back to the time of Abraham. That's what the Jewish people do. They remember the Passover every Friday. Is remembering the story of the Passover when the Jewish people were held in slavery in Egypt and Pharaoh wouldn't let them go and the angel of death passed over every house which had the blood of lamb on the doorposts and the angel of death passed over but every house where there wasn't that blood on the doorpost you can read it in scripture the firstborn died and the Jewish people remember that story and every other story where God was active in their history and in their lives and during horrific times like the Holocaust they remembered they never stopped remembering and so for me, as I've gone through tough times, nothing like that, I've just tried to remember. I've just tried to cling on. God, was that really you? Did you really do that back then? And the answer's always been yes. And that's helped me to look to the future. By remembering the past, it holds me in the present and it helps me look to the future. But here again we struggle because I've got to be honest with you, Apart from you guys sat here, obviously you're the exception, Christians, by and large, can be monumental idiots when it comes to pastoral care and saying sensible, sensitive, loving, empathising type things. Here's a scenario you may recognise. Someone is going through a tremendously tough time. They're broken, they're hurting. Life is chaos and they don't know which way to turn. And a Christian walks up to them. And the Christian says, oh, don't worry. God has a plan for your life. It will all be okay. Now that sounds nice, doesn't it? Can I tell you though, for the person who's hurting, it's monumentally pants to hear. Because what you've just said to that person is, I'm not really listening to what you're going through now because it doesn't really matter because God's got a plan for somewhere down the line. But what's happening for you right now is trivial. That's what it feels like. If someone comes to you and they're hurting, the best thing you can do is not just say to them, it's going to be okay one day. It is to sit and to listen. To listen, to feel, to understand what that person is experiencing in that moment right now. One of the things that, that Ron will experience and, and Claire and I carried f for so many years is listening day in, day out to the pain of people because it's all around us all the time and it's a burden Pray for Ron, pray for Claire in the burdens that they carry as they care and love people because what they do is they listen and they empathise. They don't brush over, they don't dismiss. They absorb and they hold on to people's pain. And that is an act of love. In my last talk, we were talking about loneliness and I said that actually what we cry out for is to be known. When we are known, we are not lonely. 
when someone really knows who we are, what we're about and what we're experiencing, it's in that moment that we are no longer lonely, but we are held in relationship that means something. When people are suffering, to sit with them and to say, I feel your pain. I hear what you're going through right now. And that is hard. Those words are the most beautiful words to hear. Not it's going to be okay one day, but to be affirmed in your suffering can be the most beautiful thing, the most releasing, the most precious thing. Because finally you cry out and say, somebody understands. I'm sorry, but you can't say to the person who's just lost a child, it'll be okay. God has a plan. You can't say to the person whose partner has been diagnosed with a terminal illness, it'll be okay. You can't say to someone facing redundancy, it'll be okay. You can't say to someone whose husband or wife has just walked out on them, it'll be fine. Because in that moment, it isn't. And in that moment, they need to be known. And that's where we can pour out our hearts to God as well. Because it's in those moments that our Father God knows and understands more than we even know and understand ourselves. He is our refuge. He is safe. There's a theologian called Jürgen Monkman. A fabulous name. Brilliant theologian. He's hopeless on Twitter, though. If you follow him on Twitter... He hasn't quite got the hang of it. He's a much older generation. and Every message he wants to send is at least three or four tweets long. So he's all strung together. You have to read down through his timeline to see what he's saying. But he's brilliant. And he written, he's written a book called The Crucified God. And in there, he talks about the suffering of God. And there's a, an anecdote early on, I think from the Second World War, where uh, a ship one of the Allied ships had been torpedoed and down below decks, hundreds of sailors were, uh, were killed and they were trapped in this hold and it was a, a massive tragedy. And there was a letter in the Times where someone wrote and said, where was God for those sailors? And an answer came, I think it was from a bishop or an archbishop who wrote, sir, where was God? God was in the bilges with the sailors crying as they met their death. And that's the gospel story, that God is the suffering God, that he would know us in our suffering. One of the things we've turned that gospel story into is that God is the Bob the Builder God. Can he fix it? Yes, he can. But that isn't true. Well, it is, because he can fix it, but will he fix it every time, without fail, as we expect him to, when we want him to, according to our terms and our schedule? No, he won't, because God is sovereign. And he has a much bigger picture and a much longer timeline, timeline than we do. And God isn't about just fixing everything. So he has fixed some things for me, and other things for me he has monumentally not fixed. So what's interesting about my arm is that the pain has been taken miraculously. But I still can't turn my hand over. And I still can't put my arm up in the air, and I still can't do more than carry a cup of tea most times without dropping it. 
That's not fixed. I've had that since I was a kid. Weird. Why would God take the pain but not fix the arm? Why does God do that? We all suffer, we will all die. Why does God not take it all away? Because God isn't about fixing every single thing. There's something deeper and more important for us to find. Stephen was stoned to death. The Apostle Stephen, in Acts, you can read his story. God didn't make it all okay for him. The stones kept coming at his head. Stephen was faithful. Stephen was prayerful. But the stones kept on coming at Stephen's head until he was dead. That wasn't okay. You don't need a theology degree to know that's not okay. But Stephen died in peace. He looked up to heaven and he called out. And scripture says he fell asleep. He called out, Lord, receive my spirit. And he just died. God's picture is eternal. Ours is temporary. In Revelation chapter 4, this is one of the places where I've gone time and time again. When I've poured out my heart, I've actually come here because this isn't about my heart. This is about God. Revelation chapter 4, verse 6. No, verse, uh, yeah, verse 6. So this is John being caught up. He's been given a vision of heaven, a prophetic vision. Uh, you can interpret this as you like. I like to think of this bit of this scripture as him having a real glimpse into the real-time happenings of heaven. I like to believe this is what it's going to look like when we go there. And we're like, wow. Also before, so there's this big throne room. And there's loads of stuff about the throne I haven't got time to go into, but it says, verse 6 and onwards, also before the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the centre around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. God is holy and worthy of worship and praise and adoration. And that's nothing to do with how we feel. God does not stop being worthy of worship when we're having a really pants day. God doesn't stop being worthy of adoration when life has fallen apart. God doesn't stop being worthy of being praised and glorified in our words, in our actions, in our thoughts. When a marriage has fallen apart or we've just been given a redundancy notice or some horrible medical things happen to us or just life is full of stress. How we feel does not determine God's nature. 
And also how you feel does not determine your nature. And what you've done in your past doesn't determine your nature. And what you're going to do in your future doesn't determine your nature. The fact is simply that all the stuff of life that happens, the comings and goings, they don't change one jot the fact that you were created purposefully by a God who loves you. You were created in his image. And nothing you can do can change that. And no circumstance of life can change that. And no circumstance of life and nothing you can do or feel can change who God is. He is holy, holy, holy. And none of that is about him fixing problems. It is about a God who would embrace suffering. A God who would willingly be crucified on a cross that he might know you more intimately. That he could identify with your suffering. That he could draw alongside you when you're crying. That that God is the same God who is the holy God And he wants you to be with him in his holiness. That's the stuff that starts to transform the reality of our present day and carry us into an unknown future. For Stephen, as the rocks pelted against his head, ripping chunks of flesh and bone, as his body broke and gave up, He looked to the holy, holy, holy. Lord, receive me. Know me. Take me. Let me just be with you now. None of this matters. I know that you know. I know that you feel. I know that you're here. I'm done. And he enters peace and eternity. Shalom. Shalom breaks over his life. And that shalom, that holiness of God, can break into our lives in the most unlikely moments when we pour out our hearts to him in that broken places, in the, in the naff places, the horrid, dark, stinky, rubbish places that life takes us to. It's in those places how we can say, God, you are holy. And allow his shalom just to break open into our lives. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what's happening. Although those things are painful and real, God knows them. More than anybody else, he knows them intimately. When he hung on the cross, he embraced that pain that you're feeling. And he can be your refuge in those times because he knows He knows the pain, he knows the suffering and he will not leave you alone. Will you pour out your hearts to God? Not just with the good stuff, not just with the praise and adoration and the hallelujahs, but with the really crummy rubbish stuff and say, God, this hurts. Please bring me your shalom. God is there, ready and willing. He may not fix every moment. He may not fix every problem. But he will be in the bilges with you, crying. And you will not be alone. And you will be known by him. And you will know him more deeply. Amen.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that we can pour out our hearts to you in the good times when we're full of praise and and joy, but especially in the hard times, especially when things are broken, especially when we're confused, alone, suffering and struggling, when, when we have no answers and we long for change. Lord, thank you that in those moments you know us intimately. You know and understand the depths of our suffering. Lord, thank you that you love us deeply in those moments as our Father. Thank you that you have not caused those things in us and they are not punishments to us. They are just the brokenness of life and thank you that you have embraced that brokenness and you want to do something about it. So Lord, come to us in our broken places as we pour out our hearts to you. Would you meet us? Would you walk with us? Would you mend us where you would mend us and sit with us where you would just sit with us? May we know that we are known by you and may we find peace in that knowing and in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.